was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure. Maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. Next up, you're going to hear from David Yaffe, who built his company up from scratch in two short years, sold it in a nine-figure exit. I mean, at times I was just beside myself with laughter, realizing how quickly and the speed with which he was able to build the value of his company into a nine-figure exit. It's just unbelievable. I don't think I've ever seen that in any of the exits we've chronicled here on Built to Sell Radio. It's just an amazing story. Yaffe talks in particular about his strategy for getting the acquirer to increase their offer over time. I'm not going to spoil the punchline, but rest assured, the first offer was one-tenth the offer they finally agreed to about a year later. In other words, over a 12-month period, Yaffe was able to get them to increase their offer 10x. It's a very interesting strategy that he'll describe how he used it and what you can take away from that. Lots of other key takeaways from David's story. In particular, why splitting equity equally among co-founders may actually not be the right idea. The secret to building a two-sided market where speed is often the prerequisite. When it's okay to fib about your progress to key stakeholders, how to retain key employees, in particular those that are really highly desirable, easily poached by potential uh, competitors. And then an alternative to tying your earnout to performance. Here to tell you how David Yaffe did it is Yaffe himself. Enjoy. David Yaffe, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, thanks for having me. So tell me about the genesis for this company. You were a Google employee and how, first of all, how could you ever leave Google? Isn't it like the juggernaut everyone wants to work at? Absolutely. That was like one of the hardest decisions that I've ever made. Um, so I, I landed at Google through an acquisition through a company called Invite Media. Um, and that was a sale that happened in 2010. Um, and because of that, I kind of had that, that, like startup blood in me and, and then the thirst to be on the founding team. I was the, one of the very early employees on Invite Media, but I really wanted to be on a founding team and uh, start my own company and sell it to a bigger company eventually. Um, so that pushed me to do what, you know, I think is really considered to be an illogical move. Um, leaving Google, it has to be considered an illogical move. And I, I realized that when I shopped it, or I shopped around and I was thinking about getting another job and leaving leaving the company, there was just no, nothing that made any sense. The only way to leave Google um, is to do th so via starting a company. So I, um, I just really, for me, the, the reason that I ended up leaving was because I had a great co-founder um, that I wanted to start a company with. And as soon as um, I was able to convince them, actually two co-founders, them to leave, um, that made it a lot easier because jumping, taking the plunge by myself would have been pretty difficult. Um, that combined with having a, an idea that I was pretty confident in, um, at the time, uh, that, and what was the I idea? Just, what, what were you setting out to do? So at Google, I led a, a advertising platform called double click bid manager uh, from a product point of view. Um, and double click bid manager is their, uh, demand side platform, which in the industry means, um, you work with a whole bunch of marketers and you try to help them bring their ads to websites. We, we were the connective tissue that effectively connected those marketers to, to find basically every website in the world. Um, 
And what we saw was that Google and Facebook combined were eating everyone's lunch at the time. They represented about 80% of every new ad dollar that was coming online. Um, so our thesis was that that was happening because um, Google and Facebook had interesting data assets that no one else had in the world. And frankly, still kind of do. Um, they have um, this identity graph that uh, represents, you know, most of the world. And they have this first party data that enables them to just put much more representative and relevant advertisements in front of anyone. So we decided that um, if we could figure out a way for publishers who had small pieces of that pie, maybe they didn't have as big of a, a network as Google and Facebook, but um, small pieces of the pie and they could come together and federate an identity graph between them, um, we'd be able to build an asset that was kind of similar to that. So that was the okay. idea behind Arbor. Okay, so you've now exceeded my intellectual or technical knowledge. <laughs> so that's very easy to do. So, okay, let's imagine I'm a, I'm, I'm a dog lover, right? Yep. And so I go on lots of websites. I mean, lots of, I'm always posting pictures of my dog and Facebook. Facebook figures this out and puts an ad that says buy dog food from Purina, whatever, because they figure I'm a dog lover. Mm -hmm. Fair that's enough. Right. Okay. So, you, so that's great for Facebook because everybody uses Facebook or Instagram, mm -hmm. but you're saying there are other guys out there that are maybe smaller publishers like outside magazine or yeah, that's a great example. Okay. Outside yeah. magazine. I might go on the outside magazine website and they don't have the resources of a Facebook yeah. to know that I'm a dog lover. That's a good example. So they might not know that you're a dog lover, but they have a piece of the pie. They understand that you, you like outdoors. Um, so, if we created a, uh, the infrastructure that connected people who like outside magazine, you know, uh, with other magazines that might be relevant to dogs in this case, um, and allowed for basically them to com combine their views and be able to share that information um, in a privacy safe way. Um, so so the, how did you separate? Because outside magazine is not going to want to share data with some other publisher, New York Times. So how did you draw that like a Chinese wall or some sort of uh, structure that didn't allow each That's, other to see each other's data? It's a great, uh, a great question. Uh, one of the things that we allowed for was rigid controls around who you could share with and who you wouldn't share with. And those rigid controls essentially um, meant that Outside Magazine could not share their data with with another outdoor magazine if they didn't want to. Um, for the most part, those, those weren't used as much, but just having the ability to say that you could control it um, was, was very powerful. It was enough to get people over the edge. Um, and we, we ended up implementing those all from a backend point of view. Um, so, so yeah, that was the kind of platform. Um, and we, we ended up working with around uh, 200 publishers within short order. So let me get this. I, again, I don't know if Outside Magazine or New York Times is one of those publishers. doesn't really matter. But for my example here, so let's say I read a story on New York Times about how to care for your dog during a pandemic. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Or why dogs are getting separation anxiety as people go back to work. I think that was actually a recent article. <laughs> so your system would say, ha, Warlow likes dogs. So then you would feed that information back to Outside Magazine saying, if you've got Purina as an advertiser, this guy, Warlow, likes dogs. You should, you should serve it up to this guy, not this guy. Yeah, we could help, help uh, connect that data set pretty, uh, pretty easily between those different publishers. So cool. Man, it's kind of spooky, but it's cool. How did you make money? What was the business model? Like how did, who, who paid who for what? Um, so generally speaking, we, we worked with the publishers. The publishers um, were incentivized via money. Um, and they, they, we, we revenue shared with them. Um, and then on the buy side, there were, there were big technology companies, uh, not as big as, you know, the Googles and Facebooks of the world, but marketing companies that were interested in, in that type of information. And we connected those all together. Um, and then eventually even marketers and direct, direct marketers themselves. Um, so we would create a platform where they could, you know, all come together and, and put their data there. And um, then the marketers could end using it. Sounds incredibly expensive to set up. Like once you've got it going, I can see it yeah. being lucrative. Like, but, but how much money did you have to raise to get the thing off the ground? 
Um, so we ended up raising about two and a quarter million dollars in the first round. So it wasn't, you know, ex that, that expensive to set up. We'd had a lot of experience building these types of systems before. Um, one of the interesting things that we did was we built, uh, we, we built an entire open source project that's, that's live and actually the basis of my now, my next company, hmm. um, that open source project's called Gazette. It's a, it's a real time, uh, data processing infrastructure. Um, and that was probably the most expensive thing to start. Um, and, you know, in, in hindsight, it was great, but it took us a while. Uh, we've been working on that thing for the last four, for five or six years, actually. I always find this fascinating. Like, how did you guys figure out the equity slices? Because in the beginning, like you could throw valuation numbers out there. Oh, their total addressable market is this. And you could put the hockey stick, but like, it's all just vaporware in the beginning. Like, how did you figure <laughs> out who was going to own what percentage of the company? And then how did you figure out how, you know, what a slice of it was worth when you raised right. that first round? It all seems so arbitrary to me. I'm not a tech guy, so it's kind of, you know. I think, you know, it is kind of a weird concept. Um, so we had three co-founders and the initial task is obviously divvying up the company between the three co-founders. Um, and I think one of the things we, the principles we started with was we, we didn't want to start with equal, um, with equal ownership. Oh, didn't. Um, and the, okay. the reason for that is because different roles, um, you know, effectively, if you, there are online equity calculators that you can use to figure out what a, a role is theoretically worth at a, a stage of a company. And we ended up plugging it into that, talking with a whole bunch of people. Um, you know, one of our founders started a little app to the other two. So all that combined led to, you know, the, the, final breakdown, but it isn't an easy thing to figure out. And it's certainly not an easy um, conversation to have at the beginning. What tips uh, would you give a, a, a new founding group that was trying to figure it out? My first tip is just pay attention to the, the numbers and the roles of founders that you have. Because um, I think it's a, I, I see a lot of companies getting started with three people who had the exact same job title effectively, um, or, you know, two people with the same job title. It's really nice when you have a team that does different things. Um, and, and our team was like that. We had uh, myself, I, I was the founder and CEO, my co-founder, um, one of them was our CTO. So he built the, the product itself. And the final one was uh, he led sales and operations for us. Um, so, that is a nice looking team because it, it ends up, you can naturally divvy tasks up um, and you get a lot more done that way. Um, so I think making sure that you're really mindful of selecting a founding team that, that is um, complementary to each other is, is super important. And so all three of you guys were at Google at the time? We were, we came, we all came over via the Invite Media acquisition. What impact did it have for three guys from Google to rock up to an investment firm and say, okay, here's the idea. I got to imagine that that carries a lot of weight. Yeah. Especially that we had done previously successful ventures in the marketing space and the advertising space before. Um, the fundraising process for Arbor was pretty straightforward. We, we raised uh, the whole process took about a week and we ended up raising and basically um, getting I think we had seven meetings in that week and got four offers um, and, and ended up just picking the firm that we, we liked the most, which was first round capital. And when you do those, are, are you, are you saying, look, this is what we want the valuation to be or so you're kind of putting a price, if you will, or valuation on your business, or are you, are you letting the market basically determine what they think the market is and had having them make offers do you know what I'm getting at? I do know what you're getting at. I think that it's something that I didn't know back then, which I wish I did, was that um, you really need to be telling the market what, what um, the business is raising and why it's raising that amount of capital. Um, the valuation is kind of a strange thing. Uh, it comes from both the market, of course, but it also comes from what you want to do, right? If in the first 18 months of building a company, you have goals that are going to cost you $2 million, you should figure that out. And, and the, the valuation sometimes backs in at least at a seed round to, to what you're raising and what the needs of the company are. Um, so I think that's a key thing to, 
think about for a founder to figure out what they need, um, why they need it, and then try to try to make their own valuation based on that. And, you know, in the end, it's probably not the valuation that you pick and you put down on your slide deck probably isn't going to be the one that you end up um, raising at, but it's important to be um, authoritative and thoughtful around what you think you want to do at least. How, how much of the company did you have to give up through all these successive rounds of, of uh, raising money? Um, we ended up doing two fundraising rounds, uh, which isn't so bad um, for, for the sale that we had. Um, and we gave around 45% of the company up over two fundraising rounds, which is very painful when you look at the numbers at the end, but um, it's, it's actually pretty reasonable for, uh, for this type of thing. So let's get into the story itself. So you get the money, you build the, I'm not sure what you called it, but it was the, the infrastructure, the, the database, I guess that, is that what you uh, refer to it as? No, we, it's a platform. It was a, 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 a data platform effectively. Data platform. Got it. Okay. Um, when was this that you raised your first round? What year? Uh, 2014. It was October of 2014 that we closed. Got it. And you sold in? 2016, November of 2016. So about two, uh, two years and one month. Uh, uh, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty quick... It's ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> How do quick you in 24... So... so <laughs> Uh, what, okay. So what, what do you do in two years to create nine figures worth of value? It's a good question. Um, I think. And can I sign up for your next deal? Is there like a, <laughs> is there some sort of like investment round? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Not yet, but I'll let you know. Um, <laughs> so, so it's a really good question. Um, I think we had a, a really interesting place with Arbor. We, we hit the right market, the right team, the right time. We hit a space where people wanted something new. Um, we hit the right financial model, the right business model, and we did that all really quickly. What was the first milestone um, though? That, that, that what's, what was the first critical decision or first milestone you reached where you're like, I, we're onto something here? Um, I think the hardest thing for us was to get people to care about the, the asset that we had, we had to get to critical mass. We had to get to a point where we, we had enough publishers signed up for the thing. What was critical mass for you? I wanted to cover about 40% of the U S um, in terms of eyeballs. In terms of eyeballs views? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So the New York times a drives a lot of unique eyeballs outside magazine, less for you example, to get yeah. to 40%. 40% coverage of the U.S. Uh, unique users. And, and, and that was kind of like an arbitrary metric that I set up, but it was something that was really important because, um, because just to get to a reasonable scale where marketers could actually reach their audiences, you need to, you need to hit a certain amount it's of like a, data. It's like a classic chicken or egg of a marketplace, right? You had to have enough people. And, yeah, and it, it's a two-sided marketplace. So setting up a two-sided marketplace is always tough. Um, and it was just a hustle at the, the first few months when we built the technology and we were ready to go live. Um, it, I was basically on the phone all day, every day with different people in different spaces, just say, saying on one side, hey, we already have 40%, you should join on. And on the other side, hey, you know, we already have 20 buyers, you should join on. And, and you know what, we didn't have any of that, but by the time we, we ended up going live, we actually did. So it actually worked out somehow. Um, and that was the milestone. You seem to me to be a hugely transparent, very authentic guy. We, meet, we don't know each other very well, but just in, the, in our brief interactions. What did that feel like to basically, I, lying is probably too strong a word, but I mean, fudging it, right? It, like, what, what did that feel like for you? Yeah, I wouldn't say, you know, I think we were, com I was confident enough with all the conversations that we had that, um, each one was at a 70% chance of going through um, that we had enough going on that we were going to get, we were going to get them through. Um, and, and for that reason, I felt pretty confident and comfortable with those conversations. Um, but I think it's just a principle, right? Like it's, it's a principle of having a two-sided marketplace. There is a startup problem and you need to get people excited and you need to get, um, you need to have, there's a day one and that day one, you know, needs to be successful. And, um, I don't think that there was ever a time where people were 
misinformed on the, you know, the situation of the company or anything like that. Uh, they knew exactly where we were. Um, and, but, and they knew that we had a lot of conversations going and we were, we were scaling really quickly and we were, um, so I, I felt pretty comfortable with those conversations, but it was, I think the, the more important thing about that piece is that, um, when you do have that type of two-sided problem, it's really important to, um, to just be on top of every possible route that you can go to understand every player in the market and to, um, have every conversation that you can have. As you reflect back, who was the biggest win? Like what media organization did you win that really put you over the top? You know, it was, that's a hard question because we needed a lot. We needed, um, you know, we needed to have a, a significant amount of critical mass to, to get there. Um, so I don't think there was any one specific company that we, we won. It was more, um, the fact that everything kind of came together within a few months time period. Um, and, and, you know, if you talk to any customer that we had, they, they were all very happy with the, the outcome and the product and everything. So um, I think when you're talking about this type of scale that we needed to go live, we, there isn't, you can't refer to a single player that, that ends up pushing you over the edge. And in your case, it was with the media companies, at least it was a revenue sharing agreement. So you weren't, as I understand, asking for cash up front. It was simply right. sign up and we will share. We'll do a yep. rev share on stuff that got it. Which made it really easy for them to go live. There was no real, um, there's no risk there. Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, I think classically companies are, uh, they give money up front for this type of thing. So it was also easy for us. We, we didn't have to pay our publishers anything to go live either. We just needed to make sure that they, the checks that they were getting were sizable enough to keep them excited. Got it. So you're kind of classic intermediary, if you will, in a two-sided market. Did you ever, I know in some cases, uh, care.com, for example, has experimented with, with getting one side of the two-sided market to pay. Did you guys ever talk about you, you know, user fees are getting one of the two sides to sort of pay to, to join the market. Yeah. Um, the, the buy side did pay to join. Oh, they the did. Okay. Yeah. They had to, that was basically how we ended up um, making money through fees that happened on the buy side. Um, and yeah, that was a good model. I think if we were, we were pretty liberal too with like the amounts of money that we paid out and everything. So, um, that model worked and scaled well. How, how big did you get the company, you know, in terms of number of employees before you decided to sell? It was pretty small. Um, we were able to handle this whole network and this, this technology play that we built with a relatively small number of employees. It was 25, I think, at the, the day that we sold. Um, and we were scaling quickly. We had actually just raised our Series A two months before our final sale, which is kind of bad timing, but... Hmm. Um, yeah, so, so we were, we were definitely hiring quickly, but, um, small business at that point. Yeah. Bad timing in what respect? Why do you, why would you say it was bad timing? Well, as soon as you raise a series A, you give away 20% of your company, right? Right. Right. <laughs> if you could, right. if you could not do that, right. Two months before you sell, that would be pretty favorable. But, so what happened? Um, why, why did you, why did you sell just two months after raising money? Um, so it, it was a whole bunch of different factors, but basically we had a persistent acquirer that came to us, um, kind of at the beginning of 2016. Um, and they gave a few different offers for the business. Um, and you know, those kept coming back, but eventually we, we kind of said, we're not ready to sell. We're too early. We want to create a, a big company. Um, and we kind of shut the door on those conversations. Um, so at that time, what I realized was that we had built a, a platform with kind of a V1 product. Um, and to get to the next phase, we'd have to do about six months to a year of product building um, with the current team that we had. Uh, or I could probably accelerate that by raising some money and, and getting to this kind of V2 product. Um, and we decided to go that route. We, we, the founding team wanted to make a big company. We, we didn't leave Google and down this thing to, to make something that was uh, just a year and a half, two year flip. Um, so we ended up deciding to 
go the route of fundraising. We, it was an inside round. One of the, um, one of the uh, investors in our previous round had just decided to take it on. And it Is was that what you mean by an inside round when like an existing investor re-ups and Yeah, they more? led the, the next round. I've never well. heard that term before, inside round. I'm going to write down. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So we ended up deciding to go with you know, an investor. It made it a lot faster. We ended up closing the round in just a couple of weeks. Um, and that was the reason, um, we, we weren't, we were fully expecting to buckle down for the next 18 months, build the product, add a whole bunch of new customers on the new product and grow. Um, it just so happened that the same acquirer came back and they offered us um, a valuation that we, we couldn't refuse based on our current revenue. And, um, honestly, there's, there's risks whenever you start a business, right? There's execution risks, there's regulatory risks, there's, um, there's just, you know, everything that, that goes along with starting a business and, um, combined with the risks, of execution and everything, we decided it was a, a sizable offer enough to, to take it off the table. Who was the acquirer? It was uh, live rep. And they had uh, been pursuing you throughout this process. Yeah. They're a public company. Um, so yeah, we'd been talking for a while. We're pretty close. We liked their team uh, as well. What did, what do they do? What did, what I've never heard of them. What do they do? They're a marketing space company. They're, they are identity for marketing is uh, their tagline. So they help um, any marketer that has information uh, that they has customer lists of, of their users. Um, and say they they work with someone like, for instance, um, Macy's or someone like that. Um, those types of companies have catalogs of offline um, where they've been classically working with offline customers that buy stuff and get it shipped to their homes. Um, LiveRamp helps them connect that data online. So they help them take that data and bring it online. Um, and that's the, the primary business model, but um, that, the space was blowing up at that point. So. Um, you know, it was a, a natural place for LiveRamp to come to us. And what was it that they saw in you that was so strategic for them? Um, we had built out um, a data asset that was pretty strategic for them and in, in their core business. What um, do you we mean immediately. By that? I don't know what you so, mean by data asset. Um, so I mentioned that how we connected publishers and marketers. Publishers had a whole bunch of data. Um, we built out a data asset of a whole bunch of publishers. Um, and we were able to take that and introduce them to new publishers that they didn't have, they didn't work with. Um, they used that data to, to connect users online. Um, so we gave them new relationships in that space. Um, we gave them technology as well. The technology is extremely important. Um, that was the open source thing that, that I spoke about. And even though it's open source, um, it's still, it was a valuable technology because we focused on um, real-time data. So literally like when something happens, you can start doing analy analytics on it um, and using it that moment. Um, so it was, that was um, something that just was very nascent and still is nascent in the space, being able to act in real time and use data in real time. Interesting. And, and so did they ever allude to threaten uh, doing it themselves. Like clearly you guys had built something very quickly in less than two years. Presumably they have pretty smart engineers too. And wouldn't they be able to do something similar? It's a good question. Uh, I mean, this is, especially if you're talking about that real time data um, component, it's a very hard problem. It's, it's a problem so much so that my next company is focused on it. Right. Mm. Um, Estuary tries to fill that gap and make it so that um, any company that wants to use data in real time, get analytics in real time. Um, they don't, classically, there's been this chasm between um, doing things in what's called batch. You do it all at once at one time and doing things in real time continuously. Um, we try to fill that gap by making it so that you can look at everything in both ways if you want to. Um, that piece of technology is really unique. Um, so that's something that I think is, uh, w would have been very difficult to build for any company. Um, so I, I wasn't too worried to be honest about a company coming and trying to replicate our technology. Um, the data asset is something that we, we knew that we would be 
probably locked in a war against. <laughs> hmm. How did you protect your people from live stream poaching them? Like, I guess your CTO had shares, so he had some skin in the game or she had some skin in the game, mm-hmm. but the tier below them, I'm presuming that live stream like would have been trying to poach them all the time leading up to them yeah. increasing their offer, et cetera. Um, so live ramp, but uh, no worries. Oh, sorry, um, sorry. <laughs> I'll get the name of the company, right? Sorry. Live ramp. No worries. Um, there is this company called live stream, isn't there? There, there is a company Anyways, called live stream. I'll get it right. So live ramp would have been, I'm sure desperate to try to poach those guys, gals underneath your CTO. Yeah. I think going to a, being at a startup and having one of the things that we had was we had a mission and a vision and we were this really exciting high growth company and everyone saw it. You could feel it in the company. Um, we would talk about goals and then we would exceed them by two, three X. It was, it was a exciting place to be. Um, so I honestly, I wasn't worried about that. Everyone hmm. was incentivized via equity. All of my employees had, had reasonable equity stakes in the company. Um, and I think the people that we hired were, were mission and vision oriented. They were really great people that I would love to work with again at any point in the future. Um, and I think that's key, right? When you hire people and you, you don't just set, um, you know, it doesn't feel like you're just going to work every day. It feels like you're going and you're working with people that you want to spend your time with. And, you know, we, we, we worked out of this office that was just the absolute worst place I've ever worked in my entire life. Uh, it was, they were constantly doing construction. I remember there were days when there was just like dust everywhere. You know, everyone would come in and they would be excited to, to work there. Um, so it was a special place. Uh, I, I don't think that that was something I was worried about. What was their reaction when you told them you'd sold? Um, they, they were pretty happy. Uh, no one was expecting it. Um, except that all of a sudden I was, you know, in California three days a week, every, every week. Um, that was the only way. So some people were a little bit nervous that their jobs were going away because we were folding or something like that. Um, but as soon as we sold, we, we had a very positive story. Um, one of the things that we did was we, we set aside an equity pool, uh, a pool of the acquisitions value that was actually more than the employee's equity pool. And we gave that to employees. So they all had a pretty positive outcome. Um, and, you know, they were excited to, to go into the next phase and, and build this in a bigger company and take on bigger roles. Um, so, yeah, I think everyone was pretty happy after the acquisition. There's always um, some some reluctance that, you know, you're going to a bigger company. Um, and this is, this is the third acquisition that I've been through now. Um, going to a bigger company changes things. So you have to go in with open eyes and understand that it's not going to be the same that it was. Um, and mm-hmm. that you're going to have to figure out how to work and do your job within a much bigger organization. Um, so I think that, that process takes some time and getting used to, but everyone ended up, fitting pretty well into live ramp and taking leadership roles within the company, taking on meaty tasks. And, um, you know, they were all excited. What was the, what was the difference between on a percentage terms, the original approach and the actual one that you were like, this is too good to turn down. Uh, the original offer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was about 10 times different. 10, a, a, 10 yeah. times? Oh <laughs> about 10 gosh. times between the first offer and the, the last offer. Um, and yeah, that's, that's uh, you know, we were not thinking about selling. And, and the, our revenue and our place in the market was a point where we just didn't think that, um, that our market positioning could have justified what, what we wanted out of an acquisition. So we weren't pursuing anything. What did you say when the first offer, which was one-tenth the actual one you agreed to, what, what was your reaction to them? Like, what were the words? Did you react at all? Did you say thanks, but no thanks? Or what, just take us through, be curious to know what you said, because whatever you said didn't piss them enough, enough to turn yeah, them away. I, so I think the best way to approach those situations is by saying, you know, I, 
I'm not interested in an acquisition right now, but we'd love to figure out a way to partner together. So why don't we have those types of conversations? And that, that actually did lead to partnership route um, and a partnership route in which we could kind of work with each other and see if each other's businesses would be complementary, um, which they were. And, um, you know, I think that that also allowed our teams to get to know each other, them to know that we were the real deal, that our technology was the real deal. Um, so the pivoting it into a partnership, it really does help with, with those types of conversations. Um, and we had that a couple of times um, where we were small and companies were like, we'd love to buy you. No, no, it's partly, let's partner. So it gets to be second nature after a while to, to be able to say that those words. And, and how many times did they come back and say like, this partnership's great, but we really want to acquire you. Like the first time, how many more times until you said, okay, fine, I, I give. I think it was about three or four. <laughs> it was, it was hard, honestly. Um, and, it, and were those actual hard. letters of intent, David, like were those formal, like we want to buy you, here's the offer, or were they just kind of conversations over dinner sort of thing? We got to one letter of intent um, before uh, the actual one that we ended up accepting. Um, and there was some, some sort of, it was a hard thing to say no to. So, um, it took us a while to, to kind of band together and say, we, we want to do something bigger. We want to be, make a bigger company on that last, um, offer that led to a letter of intent. Um, yeah, it's, I think I wasn't prepared for how difficult it would be to turn down some, some bigger offers that, that came our way. What made it difficult? It's just life-changing. You're, you're turning down a life-changing event where you're de-risking your operation. You're accomplishing a lot of goals that you'd set out for yourself. Um, so saying no to something that you, you previously probably would never have said no to, but you just happen to be in, in a, the right place at the right time and um, have built a nice company that, that you know can be worth a lot more. Um, it's, it's a very difficult situation to put yourself in. Uh, so I, I think there's no way to prepare you for that situation, right? There's, and, and also I was at, at the role of um, CEO. So in the, in the end, it was my decision to say yes or no to these things. Um, and we got to points where I remember my co-founders were like, no, you just make the decision. And that, <laughs> that made it even harder. Um, <laughs> no, no, I want your input. <laughs> please yeah. tell me no so I can just say no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What was the structure of the investments? Did they, the investors, did they have preferred shares? Were they guaranteed some sort of preferred return? No, um, we, we had one class of shares. Uh, we always just had, um, so we had preferred and common shares, like the way that a, a, any normal startup does. We didn't have preferences though on our preferred shares. So the, they got paid the, out at the same rate you did. Yeah, exactly. So the investors ended up getting paid out at the same time. Um, and what was the reaction to the investors at these increasing offers as the offer keeps going up and up? Obviously you're sharing, I'm assuming you're sharing that with yeah, your investors. Yeah, you share it with your board. Yeah, and, what, <laughs> yeah. What's and you reaction? get the response. Um, they were happy that we were getting offers. Uh, it wasn't a fund changing event for them at the, the lower amounts of value. We weren't gonna make their fund. Um, so they were kind of, extremely supportive. Uh, I'd say first round capital isn't a great uh, VC to work with. We had an extremely positive experience working with them. The feedback from them was always taking our side and telling us that we should do what we want. Um, and that, you know, they, they believed in us to be able to build a much bigger company as well. But so they would be happy if we continued down the path. And that would be obviously more economical for them if they ended up, you know, getting a billion dollar exit or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but um, so they were generally supportive. We, we never got to a point where we had a contentious conversation with an investor. And I think that was, it was key for us to um, interview our investors up front and make sure that we knew what we were getting into. Uh, we knew that we had done diligence on the people who were putting money into the company so that we knew that they, how they handled good times and also how they handled bad times. When it comes to the final offer where you finally said, okay, I give, what was, what was the straw that broke the camel's back? Why, why that time? You, you mentioned it was a, such a large amount of money that it was like, it would take years to, you know, lots of operational risk to, to achieve that yeah. same valuation. 
So I think when I looked at um, our timeline for putting the next product into market, it was probably six months out, realistically to start selling the next product. Then we had execution risk after that on being able to sell the product. We had to get into a new type of buyer um, and who would want you know our, our that new product, um, and that that's pretty substantial ex- execution risk. Um, I also have I've always looked at the marketing market and, and seen that there's privacy laws that just come in and to play. And for instance, GDPR was coming out around then, which is a European privacy law, which sure, would, yeah. we knew that there could easily be the, the California one, which came out eventually. And uh, we, we just didn't know from a, a kind of regulatory risk standpoint, what the market had in it. Um, so de-risking from that point of view, as well as um, from, uh, you know, the execution point of view, the, those two things combined really helped us get over the hump. Um, and, you know, I can tell you that once we said yes to that offer, I slept the best I had slept and, and uh, I, I think probably six months afterward. What was that period like between the time you said yes to the offer and actually the check hitting your, your bank account? <laughs> it was a sprint. Um, a mad dash to get things in order. We were a two-year-old company and we were not expecting to sell. So our books were not the best in the world. We had to go and like redo our accounting books and um, go through a whole period of diligence. And, you know, um, so that process was very little sleep. Um, and it was a whole team effort to try and get everything in order to, to make the thing happen. But both parties really wanted to complete the acquisition. And because of that, it made it a lot easier. Uh, it made it so that we worked together hand in hand to get the thing done. Was there any retrading at the end? Um, no, uh, there, there really wasn't any retrading. We signed the LOI and all the terms. We had done the negotiation previously. So we had pretty much agreed on all the terms. Um, so there, there really wasn't any retrading. Um, the negotiation itself was was pretty tough right before you know before we actually said yes to the acquisition what made it tough uh, i think any negotiation is tough there's so many terms that you don't even think about there's so many triggering terms like um, one of the things that we had was uh, we had a hold back uh, since we were such a young company they held back some of the, the value of the acquisition which was paid over time and you, you could imagine that anyone any founder in that situation wants to make sure they're going to receive their their um, their value. So mm-hmm. you need to make sure that you have the right triggers in place to, to cover yourself. Um, so I think, you know, those types of things are, are really important for any founder who's thinking about um, selling their company. When you talk about a holdback, is, is that the same thing as an earnout, or was it an escrow or was it, what was it specifically? Um, it's, it's the same thing as an earnout. You could think of it, uh, it being an earnout where part of the acquisition's value was held back. Um, and paid over a specified period of time. Contingent um, on you achieving goals or just staying with the company no, uh, or? Staying with the company. I think that, you know, my primary advice to any founder was never agreed, to, would be never to agree to a performance-based earnout. Because um, that's too, um, too difficult based on changing priorities within a company or, um, you know, just changing market market landscape or you getting the support that you need to achieve those goals within. So what was your earnout tied to simply tenure that you showed up for work every day? Yeah. Like most of those, most of those earnouts are basically structured in the same way. Got it. Got it. So yeah. it was, yeah. Interesting. And how did they uh, guarantee the, go ahead. What I would say is that it's, um, I think that it's important for just to put like realistic earnout t- timeframes in, in place for acquisitions because most likely you're, you'll have achieved your goals within two years. Um, your, your goals with incorporating your company into the, the larger company uh, and making that a success. So um, another piece of advice I'd probably give to founders would just be to, you know, keep that in mind with, with regards to timelines of earnouts. I'm just trying to parse that advice. Are you saying don't make them too long? Yeah, exactly. I think you'll, you can realistically, most startups, you can achieve a, a full um, enveloping of your company within the larger company and in, in synergy within two years. So yeah, I think that's a good timeline for, 
for most turnouts. Got it. Got it. I want to change gears and just talk to, to, to this kind of personally for a moment. Um, sure. I mean, it's just, a, it's just an incredible story. It must feel a little bit like winning the lottery in a way. I don't mean to say that to discount what you did, what you achieved, the incredible insight, the experience, but from taking a company from zero to a nine-figure exit in two years, it's got to feel like winning the lottery on some level. It's surreal for sure um, when that happens. And it's mostly because, you know, I think we were on a great path. The company was doing super well. Um, and you hear about people who win the lottery and they go kind of crazy. Like they buy a bunch <laughs> of stuff. Everyone that they've ever known, asked them for money. Like what, what happened to you? Did, did, did all that stuff happen or it, I think it took, it took me a little longer to get used to the idea of the exit afterwards. So, um, you, you know, personally I had to, there's this phase of readjustment where you figure out what your new goals should be <laughs> in life. Um, so I think that phase took me, probably the better part of a year just to figure out. you had out, a like, financial what, number you wanted to hit and you hit it? Yeah, exactly. So you take the better part of a year to figure out like what's next. What do you want to focus your life on? What do you want to change? Um, what do you want to, um, what's going to motivate you at that point? What did you um, come up with? So I, I first I started investing. Um, I did a decent amount of angel investing and it, I think it turns out that I'm more of an operational person. <laughs> Uh, okay. So I started another company back in October of last year. So um, before we get to that though, what, why bother? What, like you're like, why not go climb mountains, do, build well, a charity? I mean, like whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you did that too. Okay. Yeah. But what, what is it about starting another business that was, because at some point you got enough money. What, like why, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think, um, I think building things and creating things is something that people who do this just can't stop doing. Um, and you can always, there's always going to be the, your side effects of climbing mountains or doing whatever you do. And for me, that is a really big thing in my life. Um, but I think you can't replace the day to day creation and, um, and, and kind of like com parts of a company building that you, you don't get in any other, thing for me is um, working with really great people on a day-to-day -day basis and coming up with a, a, a nice environment for us to, to build and invent things. And for me, that's, that's really important. Um, it's been, it's been, you know, some of the best experiences I've had and yeah, I hope to continue. Can you describe the first time you shared the final offer number with your spouse, what was their reaction? Um, yeah, I think actually a, a, a more a funnier one was um, even than my, my spouse was that uh, when I shared it, my new apartment with my dad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so wait a minute. Okay. You owe the new apartment with your dad. So you bought a new apartment as a result of the exit. Yeah, exactly. And when he was, so my dad's uh, built houses his whole life and he's, um, he's built tons of amazing homes and stuff. And he came over to my place and I remember he like, he was looking around the top floor and he just had a tear in his eye and he's like, I'm so proud of you. And I don't think my dad's ever told me he was proud of me. <laughs> so that was, uh, wow. it was a pretty important moment for me. I'd imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I'd imagine yeah. that would feel pretty good. For him and you yeah for sure for sure um but yeah it's it's a it's definitely a life changing type of thing and um speaking of changing life so let's talk about the new company because it you've alluded to it estuary.dev am i getting the uh the url it. right okay so i think of estuary as a river that sort of empties into an ocean am i getting that right but it's, that's mm -hmm. tell me what the company what does it do what's your vision? that's right so it's the name of that is because we, we work with um, kind of like infrastructure, data infrastructure, and we, we work with streaming infrastructure. And streaming, what it means is that um, you're working with things that, are, um, that happen in real time. So um, an event gets triggered and you actually deal with it then. You can report on it then. Um, so we make it, our goal is to make it extremely easy for anyone to implement 
um, that that type of infrastructure at any scale. Right now, the alternative is to, it, it's actually very difficult. It takes a big distributed team of engineers. Um, and, you know, we want to make it as e- easy as just SQL effectively. Uh, hmm. So, yeah, we've been working on that for about a year now and just building products. Cool. And so people can check that out at estuary.dev. Estuary.dev. That's it. Great. And then are, are you, do you accept LinkedIn connections? Is that something you're into at all? Or, or is estuary.dev the best place to, for people to reach out? For sure. Um, my name is David Yaffe and you can search for me. I'll, I'll come up um, on, on LinkedIn. We'll put it in the show notes and it's Y-A-F-F-E, I believe, right? That's right. You got it. David, I am, uh, your story is amazing. It is, it is incredible. I hope I didn't, I hope I wasn't uh, in any way discounting what you achieved by suggesting that it was such a short time frame. I just think it's incredible. I'm so no, uh, grateful for We didn't expect story. that time frame either. <laughs> and it's, it's uh, you know, I think we, we were expecting fully to go at this thing for another six years. But, you know, the offer comes along. It's always good to take it. <laughs> what is it? Make hay when the sun shines? Exactly. Yeah. David, it was a pleasure to be with you. All right. You too. Take care. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.